I'm Stefan Sittig, and welcome to American Theatre Artists Online, where we talk with leading contemporary figures in American theatre. If you've been enjoying the American Theatre Artists Online podcast, I urge you to consider donating to help the artists who produce the theatre that we all love so much. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, Many performers, designers, directors, choreographers, stage crew, and theater administration staff are either without a job or in peril of losing their jobs. The Actors Fund provides assistance to artists to cover basic living expenses, such as food, essential medications, utilities, and more. If you love and enjoy theater, please consider donating to the Actors Fund today. Just go to actorsfund.org and press donate. I was younger then I was good at climbing trees I was younger then I saw everything I was hidden all the time It was easier to climb I was younger then I saw everything Where they came and where they went I was part of the event I was someone in a tree I was younger then My guest today is Tom Sesma who has numerous Broadway, off-Broadway, TV and film appearances to his credit including The Times They Are A-Changin', Man of La Mancha, and La Cage au Fall. Some recent highlights include the title role in the off-Broadway revival of Sweeney Todd and a Lucille Lortel-nominated performance in Pacific Overtures at Classic Stage Company, as well as the world premiere of Tom Kitt and John Logan's Superhero at Second Stage and Ibsen's Ghosts with Uma Thurman at Williamstown Theatre Festival. His most recent live theater performance was in Michael Friedman's Unknown Soldier, which opened on March 9th, 2020, off-Broadway at Playwrights Horizons. Three days later, live theater was suspended due to the COVID-19 pandemic, and since then, he's accumulated many remote live stream virtual credits in plays, musicals, concerts, and works in development. He has also kept busy appearing in many roles in television, film, and teaching a popular course called Acting on Zoom. He is currently starring in an online production of A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder with an all-Asian cast produced by Collaboration and with proceeds going to hashtag StopAAPIHate that will stream starting July 15th. Hi, Tom. Hi, Stefan. How are you? <laughs> I'm great. I'm, um, I'm fine. I'm hot and I'm sweaty. It's a really, really humid day. Too, um, I don't yes. know when people will be listening to this, but it's um, summer has come in with a vengeance. Summer is here. Well, we thank you yes. so much for being on American Theatre Artists Online on our podcast. 
We, um, I was looking through all the different things that you've done, your um, numerous Broadway, off-Broadway TV film. I was just thinking I could do a whole other episode of just your, your TV film appearances because they're so interesting. I, I know that you were performing um, in a play, right? Uh, or was it a pl- uh, The Unknown Soldier by Michael Friedman? Uh, oh, thank you for bringing that up. It was one of the most extraordinary and special experiences of my life. Um, and that so was right many... as COVID was about to hit, right? Yeah, we opened on March 9th. It was a Monday night. Um, we opened that night. It felt like a triumph. Um, we had a wonderful party across the street at the West Bank. And um, the next morning we got up and we had rave reviews pretty much across the board, mm. uh, particularly from the New York Times. I don't read reviews. This is just what people told me. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife was very, very proud of me. <laughs> um, because, you know, reviews don't often happen yeah, in anyone's yeah. career, so, yeah. let, alone, let alone mine. Um, and we had Tuesday night off. Mm. Um, Wednesday night, we went back for our first official performance, and the house was half empty. And mm. half of the people that were there were wearing masks. Mm. And it was a very subdued crowd. It was a very subdued audience. Um, we had had those experiences because the play is about loss and grieving and the mystery of, surf, of, of how you endure that and still, you know, have your own identity. Um, so that sort of came with the territory, but there was something a little ominous hanging over us all mm. that night. In mm. the weeks leading up to those nights, we had, of course, backstage, like everyone else, we had been talking about the... Um, the impending pandemic and uh, the inevitable shutdown. We knew mm-hmm. that this was going to happen at some point. Mm-hmm. It was just that's the question of when. Right. And um, uh, the following night, Thursday, we were all getting ready to go to the theater in our respective homes, and all of us got emails and text messages from management saying that the previous night's performance was indeed the final performance, mm-hmm. and that when it was convenient for us, we should try to come down and pick up our things. Um, and as you can guess, we all went down to the theater after we got those emails to pick up our things in the hopes that we could actually say goodbye to each other. Mm. And we did. And it was very bittersweet. Um, but I think, you know, we were prepared for it. We just didn't think it would happen so quickly. Interestingly enough, um, it was the last thing that I did, you know, before the, before the shutdown. Mm. Last week, no, two weeks ago, first post-shutdown job that I had was to walk into a recording studio to do the cast album of Unknown Soldier. Oh, wow. So so you were able to pick back up a year and a half later uh, and, and pick up, the at least from the, the, you know, the recording side of it, um, Right. To work right. We were able. We were able to put the, that final bit of punctuation on oh. that run. Wow. And we were able to close it. You yeah. know, it's a very, very special show in so many ways because, as you know, Michael Friedman was, uh, you know, tragically, tragically left us um, prior to Unknown Soldier going into rehearsal mm-hmm. in New York. Um, so there was the spirit of Michael hanging over a play mm. about loss and about grieving and about identity. Mm. Uh, you know, and that's what the play was about. 
Yeah. That's what Michael's, that's what the experience of putting the show together was about. And somehow, in our own personal ways, the questions that those issues raised were all answered for us in very, very private ways. I'm not even sure that I can articulate it, but coming back together and being able to record the album was a very, very special experience for all of us. It was a huge gift. Wow. The theater's like that, isn't it? Yes. Isn't it amazing that the theater gives all of us gifts in different ways? Absolutely, and it parallels a lot of things that are going on in our life, or it it, it sort of illuminates or, or, or calls attention sometimes to us to things that we need to look at. Uh, even as performers, you know, things that the audience may not even know about that we're going through uh, when we're on stage that, that could, you know, affect our lives. But so, you know, that was a tough moment for all theater in general, right? The whole, the, it, it's still a tough moment, the the um, the COVID pandemic. And a lot of people, the story you just told about leaving something sort of that was on the brink of sort of taking off, you know, it's like your rocket is about to take off and then you have to get out of the, out of the rocket. Um, a lot of people had that experience and then had to move out of New York. I mean, you know, and then here you are a year and a half later to be able to come and do that is, is fantastic. But let's let's talk a bit about something a little more um, upbeat, which is something I noticed in your your um, resume that you prior to the, the, the pandemic were in that production of Sweeney Todd the intimate one, the the atmospheric one, right at at Barrow mm-hmm. at Barrow, at Barrow Street, Street Theater, Theater downtown in the village. Yeah, and you played Sweeney. I did. Okay, I did. I, I, I ta- wielded the razor. I talked to Brad Oscar not too many months ago, and um, he told me how intimidating it was to do that show because this the audience was so intimate and so close, and he would sit at a table, and there was Stephen Sondheim. Um, how did you? play the role of this role in such a show, you know, Sweeney and Sweeney Todd, with your idol, um, Sondheim, sitting right there a few feet away from you. How, I can't think of anything more nerve-wracking. Can you imagine? No, I can't. I mean, you know, fortunately, I had the great good fortune, this was not the first time that I had performed in front of Sondheim, performed Sondheim stuff in front of Sondheim. Right. Um, you know, I did the revival of Pacific Overture as well. Yes. You know, and that was... That, I think, was even more intimidating because it was the first time. I think I had the great good fortune of having the obligation of doing all the things that I was supposed to do in Mm. that production of Sweeney Todd Mm. uh, that kept me too busy. Um, (laughs) You know, I I didn't have time to think about Steve being out there, Um, you know, because we're doing this epic show, this epic, intimately epic show or epically intimate show in front of people standing on tables in their faces, Mm. uh, deliberately in their faces and trying to keep up with this, you know, Mm. this beautiful, beautiful piece of theater that's being done at a jackrabbit's pace. Um, That was kind of a blessing. Mm. It kept your mind about the fact that you know, the master is sitting out there watching. Mm. But that... it, it, it also it also helped to know in advance that he really, really liked this version of the show. Right. He was very proud of the Barrow Street production. I uh, it was it was told to us that this is how he had always envisioned mm. his Sweeney Todd. Uh, that it was an intimate show, that it was essentially a, a show about five people. Isn't that amazing? This comes back again. You know, the intimacy, a lot of, of these composers really want their shows to be 
intimate and what ends up happening because of Broadway and logistics and just, you know, tourism and a lot of other things, the shows end up becoming very large. But really when you strip them down and a show like Sweeney, when you strip it down, it's really just about the music and the singing and the, and the story. It's pretty impressive what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the measure of any great show is its humanity, right? Yeah. And we earlier, before we started recording, we were talking about Miss Saigon, the fact that I did Miss Saigon down at the signature. And it was the same thing. Having done the national tour of the original production for two years, mm-hmm. um, I know what it was like. And uh, I felt that uh, I felt that it was preferable to do this big operatic epic version of Miss Saigon because that's how it was written. That's how it was supposed to sound. And then all of a sudden, you're in that beautiful, intimate space down at the Signature Theater in Arlington. You're doing it for a couple hundred people. Mm-hmm. And you feel the obligation and the blessing. I keep using those words over and over and over again because they're so apt for what we get to do mm-hmm. of playing, of, of mining the humanity of these relationships on stage and telling in a weird way, telling a completely different story than the one with the helicopter and the big statue of Ho Chi Minh and, <laughs> and, and all of these other things. Mind you, having said that, I'm incredibly proud of the work that all of us in the engineer company did back mm-hmm. then in the 90s. But, well, um, it's good to have both. I mean, what I think, for as an audience member, we, like, we love spectacle, we love the big shows, <laughs> but it's, I also then would love to be able to go see it in a small, intimate theater and really be able to focus on a specific aspect of the show that maybe I didn't see before. So it makes each production completely fresh and new, and that's what's exciting for us. Yeah, and, and, you know what, and the other thing that makes it fresh and new is the fact that, let me see, I did, uh, when was that production of, uh, at the Signature? That was in Not too long ago. In my mind, yeah. it was not too long ago. Five years ago? Six years ago? It was, it was six years ago. Yeah, something like that. So I had done it 20 years before. Right. That's when I had done the, the, mm. the tour, 20 years before. And so naturally, it was a different show for me. And it wasn't just different because it was technical. It was different because I was different. Yeah. And I think that if you had seen the show 20 years before and you went back to see a smaller production, it's not just because of the smaller that makes it different for you. It's because you are different, because you view the world differently, you experience different things. That's what happened to me with Sweeney Todd, which made it so exciting. When they first asked me to audition for the Mm. Barrow Street production, I didn't want to do it. I was going to ask you. Because because I had seen it. I had seen Norm do it, and Norm was just brilliant. Okay, let's talk a bit about... So you're bringing up Norm. I was about to bring up Norm. Were you the first Asian-American man to play Sweeney in this kind of event? Like, really, this high profile? I think I was probably the first Asian-American man to play Sweeney Todd in the United States. That's amazing. Um, And Norm Norm was the first African-American man. Correct? Yes, I believe so. Yeah, I believe so. And and um, so you mentioned Norm, which I think is interesting. So well, we'll talk about Asian representation later. But let's so keep going. Sorry, tell your your audition story. Well, no, you so know, I saw Norm up there, and he was doing this thing. He was like, yeah. he was like, you know, the, the walls were being shot off, shot mm. off the sides of the building. Yeah. Uh, it was a, it was a gorgeous performance, and I saw it, and I was out of breath when I walked out of the theater. <laughs> I was tired, and I said, mm. I do not want to work that hard. I <laughs> yeah. did this show. Because I had done Sweeney Todd, interestingly enough, right after I did Miss Saigon in the 90s mm. at Repertory Theatre St. Louis oh. and Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park. It was a production that Ed Stern, the brilliant 
sadly gone from us, Ed Stern, uh, mm. directed. And um, as good as it was, I do have to say that it was just a reduction of the original production sure. in, its, in its basic concept. You know, we brought, you know, our own things to it. It brought an enormous amount of intelligence and, and skill and humanity to the piece. Uh, but essentially, if you had seen the George Hernandez Lensbury Len Carey versions mm-hmm. of it, um, you would have seen something similar to it in what we were doing right. in St. Louis and Cincinnati. And I was very, very proud of it, and I, I you know, I didn't need to do it again. Uh, it mm. would have been nice to do it somewhere else, but I didn't need to do this. I, uh, I didn't need to do it out again, and they called me up, and... Uh, 20 years later to go in for 25 years later to go in for Barrow Street. Yeah, and I just it was it was too intimidating, and mm. I told myself I said what I needed to say 20 years 25 years ago. I don't need to try again. Then I looked at the material that they had sent me. They sent me the first scene mm-hmm. with um, Mrs. Lovett that takes place in the pie shop when she tells him that uh, his wife is had taken poison yeah. and his daughter's living with Judge Turpin. And they asked me to sing My Friends. Hmm. And I started working on it. And all of a sudden, 20 years, 25 years of my life sort of inhabited how I was doing this material. Hmm. I was doing brand new material hmm. somewhere deep down inside me. And I realized that I wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. The show was about something else for me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was excited. And I desperately, desperately wanted this job. And I didn't get it. Oh, and I didn't get it. You didn't get they it. Hired, they hired Hugh Panero instead. And he was brilliant in his own way, too. Uh, oh. But... But after Hugh was finished uh, with his uh, with his run, they right. called me up and they asked me to come in and do it, and, uh-huh. and I was fine. Uh, I was so happy. But yeah. I got the opportunity to dig deeper into mm. what made this so different for me. Mm. For me, and uh, so it was I, during. I, I, you said you mentioned you were singing the song, um, my friends, and. So was it during the singing of the song that you had this epiphany, like the music and the lyrics or after? I'm just curious to explore deeper. What was that moment that you had that realization? Because if you had it during while singing, that's pretty interesting. Well, yeah, that, that scene, the yeah. scene with Mrs. Lovett segues into that song. Yes. And they, they were great at the audition about recognizing that. And mm-hmm. so it was all of a piece. It was like, nice. do this scene, work your way into the beginning that's of the great. song. Yeah. And uh, it was somewhere in that transition between mm. the dialogue and the song itself that it suddenly hit me what the show seemed to me at that moment to be about, which I hadn't really experienced before. Wow. Um, and that was the that was kind of the straight line that I tread uh, that I got to tread for the next six months when I was doing the show itself. Mm. That's amazing. I mean, and to be able to talk about that sort of experience in theater when we're working and there's an epiphany moment, you know, there are, there are moments like that, but really in auditions, I don't know how many people have those moments. So that's really wonderful that you were able to have that creative space to have that feeling and to hit, to hit you at that time. And then you got to play the part eventually. Uh, and so it was meant to be. Um, so let's talk a bit about 
if you don't mind, I wanted to, to jump a bit about, so I, I did mention in there that, that, you know, that you are the first Asian American man to play that seminal role. It's a huge role in musical theater and in American theater, period. Um, so let's talk a bit about Asian representation, the performing arts, particularly in theater and on the stage. You know, you've been doing this for a while. You've been around, um, you know, on Broadway and off Broadway and, and around the theater regionally and elsewhere for a long time. You know, and I'm sure at times when you first started, there was, there were probably not a lot of, um, you know, non-Caucasian people in in the audition rooms, right? And and so, do you feel now as time has gone by, do you do you see an improvement? Is there more representation, even in the audition room, in the on stage? You know, what are some of the struggles you faced back then, and are you still facing them now? They'll face struggles now. I mean, I think we always will. The pendulum will swing back and forth. The difference is, is that we're more visible. Our community is more visible mm-hmm. right now. It's particularly visible right now because of the spate of uh, hate crimes mm. uh, targeted uh, yes. against Asian Americans in mm-hmm. the began. Well, that didn't begin in uh, in Atlanta in those horrible, horrible shootings in Atlanta. But that's when everyone realized mm-hmm. um, that there was a manifestation of. You know, I'm just going to use the word which we're all tired of: systemic hate. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. not just in not just in the arts, but across the board mm-hmm. in nation in our society. Um, I think the biggest difference right now with um, with Asians in, in the industry is that we're no longer asking to be tolerated. Mm. We're demanding to be included Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, on an equal basis. And I think that in many respects, asking to be tolerated was was an evolutionary step that generations uh, took. You know, we we were begging to work. We were asking for permission Mm -hmm. to walk into a room and to be considered. I don't know if I'm explaining this well, but no, it makes sense to me. The example, the example that I will use is that I recently did a reading, oh, or not recently, it was over 16 months ago. Um, <laughs> That's okay, we had a pause. Pre-pandemic, yes, you know how weird recent. time has bent this last 16 months? <laughs> if, you remove so the 16, if you remove the 16 months, it was recent, yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's funny, I was talking to somebody else about a project that I was doing, and I did the project over a year ago. Hmm. In my mind, as I was talking about it, I was referring to the project as if it were done in January of this year. Oh, wow. Yeah, so you skipped a whole... And yeah. when I was talking about it, even though I was in a conversation with this person on Zoom, mm. I was thinking it was still winter and it was a warm spring day. Yeah. It was just a couple of weeks ago. It was, it was very, very... Yeah, time has lost all meaning in the last 16 months. Anyway, back to my point. Uh, I did a reading of this wonderful new show by uh, Eileen Reed and uh, Michael Heitzman called um, Solana Hmm. with an an all-Asian cast, Mm -hmm. uh, primarily. Um, And they wrote some of the most magnificent kind of contemporary pop musical theater choral music that I've ever heard in my entire career. Mm. And I showed up late for a rehearsal because I was coming from a uh, rehearsal for something else. And the ensemble, all, um, most of whom were 
younger people who I didn't know, mm. Asian American performers, a lot of whom who just graduated from conservatory or were doing their first professional job, were singing this gorgeous, gorgeous song about who they are, who they are, who they were, mm. you know, the country they live in. Um, and um, they were singing like their lives depended on it. Hmm. They were also singing with a sense of ownership hmm. that hmm. I hadn't really experienced in a situation like that. And as I sat there listening to it, you know, as I came in late and they were doing that, I sat down and I listened to a few bars and I looked at the faces and they were all consummate professionals, hmm. yet singing with a kind of passion mm-hmm. like they had been waiting their whole lives to sing this music mm. i had to cover my face with my book because i started sobbing mm. and i don't mean to pat myself on the back or any of anyone else that's my age i realized that they were able to do that because of battles i fought a generation before oh absolutely i was going to say it for you if you weren't going to say it so i'm glad you said it but yes so and, you paved the way yeah, for, and, and, what, yeah. and what they had that i never had when i was that age hmm. was a sense of entitlement yes the new generation has a lot more sense right. of you know i deserve this and i'm going right. to claim my spot Uh, You know, when I was talking to a a dear friend of mine from college who now is an actor in L.A., has been for many years, uh, Ewan Chung, uh, he said to me in the interview, you know, we're the Asians are we're we're quiet. We're we're the silent. We've been quiet. We've been sort of the silent minority. We haven't, you know, yelled and screamed that we want to be seen or noticed. But now he notices that people are starting to claim their space more. And so that's what you're talking about. Right. This new generation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, it's easy to use the word, you know, we, uh, we oftentimes in a derisive way apply the word entitlement to millennials or Gen Xers mm-hmm. as, as in, you know, people are entitled to things that they don't really deserve. Right. No, what I meant is <laughs> a sense of ownership, a sense yeah. of entitlement, like they belong here. They're claiming they know they fair. belong here. Yeah, They're yeah. a generation of yeah. people. They, yeah. So lovely. It's wonderful. And that happened because of, Mm-hmm. Things that happened twenty and thirty years before, in the same way that there was a generation that preceded me, these these immortals like Mako and Sab Shimono and, mm-hmm. and uh, right. you know and James Hong, who's finally going to get a, a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Right. So you know um, that it's, it's possible by seeing that others um, before you were able to do it, and you did the same for this generation by by being there, showing up, um, putting in the work, and and being seen. Yeah, you know the it's 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 like the quote says. You know the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice and it bends towards inclusion. But it doesn't bend by itself. Yes, good point. You have to keep doing the work, Mm -hmm. and even as old as I am, Mm -hmm. I have to keep doing the work, and this younger generation has to keep doing the work. We have to keep showing up, and we have to keep saying we are here. Mm -hmm. We are here, and we're not going anywhere. Um, You know. We were talking earlier before um, mm-hmm. before we started recording. Uh, I did a musical, a Mitch Lee musical in 1991. It was called mm-hmm. Shoot Chem. Mm-hmm. a Chinese Jewish musical. Mm-hmm. It played at the Ritz Theater. Oh my God, we could say a lot of things about Shoot Chem. And the, Ritz, know, was, the Ritz Theater, which is now the Walter Kerr. 
Exactly. So that's exactly. how old. That's how long ago this was. That's <laughs> For how those long listening ago this in, Jim <laughs> Jam was nobody's idea of great theater. It was the last of a generation <laughs> of these sort of fanciful uh, shows about mm. Broadway. Broadway's obsession with the Orient, you know, making up this mythical China mm. and uh, and making up these weird hybrid Chinese, faux Chinese names. Uh, it was a cute show. You can say a lot about Chu Chang uh, that's negative. I prefer to walk away with the fact that here we were with almost an entirely Asian cast in mm. 1991 mm. working on Broadway doing the unexpected, in other words, showing people we were adept at musical theater, singing, dancing, acting. Uh, and those few opportunities the show afforded to actually show our stuff, mm -hmm. uh, that was a different generation. That was a battle that we fought. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, you can draw a line between a show like Chu Chem and a show like Solana, or a show like, you know, cast that's in Miss Saigon, uh, or the fact that we have now have Asian American Marvel superheroes. Right. Yeah. You can draw a straight line back to, you know, what some would consider a very, very offensive and racist film. Right. So the steps have to be taken within the context of that period and the time that something has happened. You can't right. really look back and ju judge it with today's eyes. You have to look at it right. as building blocks and steps for where we are now. So right. let, let's talk a bit about you really you, you, and, and not just your career, but I, I'm so curious. So you were born in Japan? I was born in Japan. My mother was a Japanese national. Uh, huh. She was a, uh, you know, her family survived the war. Okay. My dad was in the U.S. Navy. He was Spanish-American. Uh, his, uh, his parents were, uh, his father was uh, a child of immigrants. Mm -hmm. And um, he was in the U.S. Navy. And he met my mom. She was working in the post exchange, the Navy base uh, in Santibo, I believe it was, uh -huh. uh, working behind a counter. And he fell in love with her. He bought her a cherry pie and uh, he, he badgered her and bothered her until she started dating him <laughs> and she married him and moved to the States. And uh, oh. yeah, I have an older brother, a younger brother. And the rest is history. And so, I mean, it's, I always like to ask people sort of origin stories because, you know, myself, I'm half Latino. My mom is from Montevideo, Uruguay, and my dad is from Westminster, Maryland, a farm, raised on a farm. So how do these two people come together, right? Two people from such different backgrounds. So you, you like I, are, are the product of a bicultural, binational uh, relationship, right? Yes. Marriage. It's a fascinating thing, isn't it? Growing up watching your, your dad from one part of the world and your mom from another part of the world try to communicate and watch them, you know, often succeed and sometimes not succeed. But you learn a lot as a child, right? Growing up in that kind of household. You do. You do. I mean, you know, they bring their own histories to it. But what's Thank interesting you. about my parents, too, is that they did bring these histories to it. Yet at the mm -hmm. same time, there were limits to what we knew about each one. My mom mm -hmm. was extremely private with information about her previous life, mm -hmm. her life in Japan. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of that might have had to do with, with how cataclysmic the war was, sure. uh, where she was. I mean, I remember one day I, I, I asked her, uh, oh, mom, you know, what was the town you were in? Were you bombed during the war? And she said, yeah, all the time, all the time. Mm. Because it was one of the few things she ever said about her, uh, mm. about, you know, the, the trauma of living in a country, uh, you know, beset by war. Yeah. My dad, on the other hand, um, 
was from an immigrant family, and yet we couldn't, we can only trace his family back so far. Mm. And I found out why Mm. a couple years ago. My wife and I have walked the Camino de Santiago in Spain twice. My dad is is half Spanish. She's actually actually half Basque Mm. uh, Mm. from the the Basque region region of Spain. Yeah, it's a whole other other culture. (laughs) Right. Well, uh, you know, the Camino de Santiago is this 500-mile walk across the north of Spain. But Mm. when it goes through the Basque country, about 30 kilometers south of the Camino is the little town, get ready, Stefan, is the little town of Sesma. Wow. Yes. Oh. And so. And you found um, that along your, along your, you didn't know before you went. I, no, I, I actually knew it was there oh, because okay. the fir- we walked the Camino twice. The first time we walked the Camino in 2016, mm-hmm. um, we were checking into one of the albergues, one of the pilgrim albergues where we stay. And uh, the manager, the guy who was checking us in, said, looked at my passport and he said, oh, it's I said, you know, there's a town called Tesla just, you know, 30 kilometers south of here. We couldn't go then, but we decided to make a special trip this time, uh, specifically geared towards finding out if there were people from this town that emigrated to the United States. Well, Stefan, what I found out was, are you ready for this? This is so great. Sesma, or as they pronounce it in the Basque country, Sesma, is not a family name. What? what it is? is the name of it is a place name. Oh. It's like it's like if somebody came up to you and said, "Hi, my last name is Detroit." So it's like of, like Tom of Sesma. Yeah. And what happens what happened here was that lots of people left this area, hmm. moved to other countries and took the name of the town. Oh, rather than use their Wow, that's now, fascinating. Yeah, no, this is something that happened all the time mm-hmm. with uh, primarily at the end of the 19th century when immigrants from Southern Europe mm-hmm. would come to the States and they yeah. would have unwieldy names and they'd be renamed by, you yeah. know, customs officials, from or immigration officials. Yeah. The city but this was actually a question of immigrants themselves changing yeah. their names. Wow. Um, and uh, so I'm not sure if I'll ever be able to trace my dad's family back but I do know that they come from that he his family came from this area. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but what but what that leaves us with to jump back to what we were talking mm-hmm. about is that my mother and my my father came from different parts of the world, different cultures. They came together. They were basically a microcosmic melting pot. Mm-hmm. They created the quintessential American family. Yeah. Never mind the fact that, you know, my dad was a dark-skinned uh, Spaniard, my mom was Japanese. We were the quintessential American family. We mm-hmm. got to create, we got to identify ourselves as American. Right. We had to identify ourselves as American because we couldn't really get our minds, our consciousnesses, our souls back to you know, our points of origin. Well, that's what gives the cohesion. The American identity is part of what brings you all together, and then you can create, you become sort of something else. You're American, but, you know, all your little pieces, and that's really the history of our country is that we're all from so many different places, and none of us are really American. We've all fashioned ourselves American, but really we're not. <laughs> we're yeah, just, so, it's a creation. Yeah. <laughs> it's so if, you know, if anyone out there is ever going to say, you don't belong here, yeah. You know, oh. 
Don't this is why you can't say that. No, nobody belongs here. And we all belong right. here, both of us. Both. <laughs> right. Well, we all belong here, exactly. exactly. I mean, and this, nobody. Is, this is why we all belong here. <laughs> right. you know, it's, we're, we're, self actual, yeah. we're a self-actualizing so, culture. So, fascinating. You're growing up in this bicultural, binational household. Um, and how does theater come about for you? Like, how did So, how did you get your start in theater? Was something you always wanted to do? Did something inspire you? Did you see something? Did you have a mentor? So how did that spark get started for you? Because here you are making your life on the stage. So something must have happened. Gosh, Stefan, you know, uh, it must have been inside. Mm. Ever since I was a little boy, I remember the first show that I ever saw. My dad Mm. loved musical theater. Mm. I didn't know where he where his uh, appeal for uh, musical theater started. But uh, we lived in San Diego. Uh, we lived in, you know, just tract housing, you know, mm-hmm. single family dwelling. And, uh, you know, on Sundays, there was on KSDO AM radio, there was a show called The Sunday Show, and they played uh, past albums mm. every Sunday at one o'clock. Wow. And my dad would turn that up. My dad also had this small collection of LPs of mm-hmm. uh, original cast albums. We're talking Alfred Drake and Patricia Morrison and Kiss and Kate, or oh. the original cast album of mm-hmm. West Side Story, the original cast album of yes. The Sound of Music. And uh, oh. he would put these on his big giant hi-fi stereo, crank up the volume to <laughs> the equivalent of 15, because <laughs> back in the 60s, the dial only went up to eight, <laughs> not even 10. Right. And he would he would play it loud enough so he could hear it while he was mowing the lawn. <laughs> so how could True you miss story. it, really? Yeah. <laughs> so that was that was kind of my introduction to that. Wow. And I would sing along with those things. Sure. Uh, then one Sunday after church, my dad said, "You know, stay in your get ready, stay in your ready clothes. We're going out. Mm. We're going to go see a show." Okay. I didn't know what that meant. I was sure. what maybe six, seven years old, yeah. uh, and. I thought it meant going to a movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, great, we're going to go to a movie. Went to this place. It was, as I later found out, something called an arena stage, mm-hmm. an arena setting, you know, mm-hmm. yep. theater in the round. Yeah. Uh, and I couldn't figure out where the movie screen was. Mm-hmm. The, the stage wasn't a circle, it was octagonal. So I okay. thought, oh, maybe like eight screens are going to come out so everybody can watch the movie. <laughs> And the lights went down, stage lights came up, there was a tree on stage, and there was a nun leaning against the tree. And she started to sing. My day in the hills has come to an end, I know. Oh, the music. That was it. Oh, wow. That was my introduction to the theater. Oh, uh, well, and you even the sang cir- the little intro that, that people don't know as well as the actual. <laughs> I'm old. I, I'm old. <laughs> so, no, good so, for you. Uh, no, yeah, that's... so uh, wow. that was it. That was it. Yeah, uh, and sure. uh, I, I sure. continue, you know, my, what my dad surprised us. He got a subscription to mm. that theater, the Circle Arts Theater in mm. San Diego, wow. California. It was an equity theater. I didn't know. I didn't know what that was at all. Right, but sure, you know, right. uh, but it was an indoor stock theater. Yeah. And we went to see that year. We saw the Sound of the Music. We saw the King and I. We saw the Music Man. Mm. We saw Camelot. All in one summer. That was the season. Pretty yeah. incredible. That is incredible. And um, and I 
I just fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how one became an actor. I didn't know who those people were. Mm-hmm. I knew on some level I could do those things deep down inside in my sort of raw, clumsy, awkward, seven, eight, nine-year-old way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do know that from then on, I was always being told to sit still, stop singing, stop dancing. <laughs> it's like you're just making a spectacle of yourself. Yeah. And, um, you know, when grade school started, uh, I did a little skit when mm. junior high school and high school started. I did plays there. Mm. But I didn't think that was something a normal person could do. Now, were your parents supportive of your interest or, or did they not see it? Because a lot of parents, especially, you know, I'm also the son of, of uh, immigrant, um, you they don't want you necessarily to go into theater or the arts because they're scared that you're not going to be able to earn a living. Were your, were your parents supportive of your love of theater and were they okay if it became a career or were they worried for you? I think they were supportive of my passion for the theater as an yeah. avocation, mm-hmm. as, as a spectator and as an occasional uh, dabbler. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> it's difficult. I have to be completely honest with Please. you, Stefan. I think my parents were worried that I wouldn't excel at anything. Mm. So, uh, uh-huh. you know, I, and I and I say that affectionately. I mean, I think I was I was pretty uh, I was a pretty unfocused child. I and, see. Uh, except yeah. Except when on stage. Thank you. Thank you. For <laughs> there that. you go. Well, that's but clearly the theater may, ha, did that for you. Well, interestingly enough, I think that's exactly mm-hmm. why I was compelled to do it at a certain because I knew I had to. But mm. as I said, all through, I mean, even through college, I mm. didn't realize that there were conservatories that people went to for training. I see. Yeah. I had no idea. Um, and I was just totally focused on finding something, anything that I could do mm-hmm. that would satisfy me, satisfy my, my intellectual, my emotional curiosity, my spiritual curiosity and satisfy my parents as well, which is very, very important to me. Um, I didn't necessarily succeed at that last thing. Uh, oh. And again, I don't say that to blame them in any way at all. Sure. It's just that, you know, they, I think they had other ambitions for me that sure. they never really articulated. Okay. Even when I had a career, even when my career started to have its own momentum, mm-hmm. they didn't quite understand what I was doing. I was going to say, sometimes that happens with the, the parents of, of performers, and even when they become successful, the parents don't ever quite get it. Even when you're successful, unless you like win an Oscar or something, and then they go, oh, okay. But I mean, other than having one of those huge moments, <laughs> the parents don't even understand how you could get paid to do what you're doing. Yeah, you know, it's just so funny. I'll, I'll tell you, my dad was so proud when he came to New York to mm-hmm. see me in my first Broadway show. My Broadway debut was the... Um, I was Ken Ward's replacement, the original cast of La Cage. I was the first replacement. Mm. And uh, he came out to see me this summer after I think I got into the show in February or March. And he came out to see me in June. Mm. And he was so proud. He was so proud of it. And and I'm sure he was proud of me. Mm. Uh, I'm sure he told me in the best way that he could. Uh, I probably didn't hear it. A year later... We were speaking on the phone. This is two weeks before he suddenly passed away. Hmm. And uh, he was talking about how terrific it was that I was in the theater, hmm. that it was something I wanted to do. This is good for you. Um, 
And then one of the last things he said was, I hope you go back to school. Finished, I, I was in graduate school. I was getting a, a degree in history. Uh, uh-huh. I was going to go into academics. And, uh, you know, it was clear that he wanted me to do something else other than be in show business. Hmm. Never mind the fact that a career in academics is is a lot dicier than a career. In <laughs> I was going to say it's almost worse, right? But, yeah, but, but yeah, but that's, but that's what he wanted me to do. That's often and, the parent the parents' dream, right. Is different than. And then yeah. my mother, you know, who uh, that was back in the eighties. My mother passed away in two thousand twelve, hmm. and you know she continued to pretty much come and see almost every important thing that I did, mm-hmm. um, wherever I was. It didn't register to me that that was um, that was a way of her saying that she was proud of me or invested in me in some way. Mm-hmm. But every time she saw me in a show afterwards, and it didn't matter what I was doing, it didn't matter if I was good, bad, or indifferent. She would sit there in my dressing room or in, at a restaurant after the show, and she would look at me, kind of cock her head and screw her eyes, and, and look at me like, "What exactly is it that you?" <laughs> wow yeah no i could imagine that's that's got to be you know and you, you've talked a bit about your background and in, in, in your life and we know we're almost out of time which is crazy it's how fast oh my it is. gosh i know we have so much more to talk about so I, there are a few more things i definitely want to want to talk about um but um you know obviously you know your your parents were, were a big influence on you and um and, and and you talk a bit a lot about how important your um faith is too uh, on your website you mentioned you're a devout roman catholic and you talked about walking the the camino de santiago um so tell me a bit about how faith has informed your journey for you and particularly in the theater has it helped you through um difficult times or <laughs> setbacks or or how do you yeah, how do you, it has, you know it's funny i was talking to you know I, i'm i'm a mentor to a lot of uh young actors mm-hmm. and this one uh, young person who just moved to new york last week we were having a conversation about this this morning that uh, you know it was a long journey it was a long hard journey mm-hmm. i was uh, i'm what they call a cradle catholic i was born a catholic mm-hmm. uh, yeah and i was you know kind of a post-Vatican II, you know, pretty obedient, uh, non-self-conscious, not really praying Catholic uh, until college. Um, I just didn't, you know, it was what I was. It isn't necessarily what I did. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when I went into college, I started doing all those things that everybody does uh, when they're in college, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. And (laughs) I left the church. I didn't leave the church angrily. I didn't leave the church on principle. I left the church because I basically didn't have time for it, and I didn't really know where God was in my life. But I knew that there was something spiritual, and for the next 30 years of my life, um, I was looking for some kind of God Mm -hmm. somewhere, whether that was in New Age philosophy or evangelical Christianity, or uh, Mm -hmm. I dabbled in in Islam for a while, Mm -hmm. uh, Zen Buddhism, um, you know, you name it. I tried it, mm-hmm. and all of it worked for a little while. But basically, what I was doing that entire time I, is I was looking for a God that could fit into my life and kind of justify how I was living. Mm. What I didn't realize for all of those 30 years was how I was living was not really working out for me. Yeah. You know, I was making a lot of mistakes. I was burning a lot of bridges. Mm. I was, uh, you know, I, sure. I had a substance abuse issue. Mm. I had compulsive behavior issues. Sure. 
they were all leading me on a downward spiral, which led me back to, I think, the early 2000s, when I hit a bottom, a personal bottom, a spiritual mm-hmm. bottom. Sure. And it suddenly flashed on me, you know, I think I'm going to try to go back to church. Hmm. Back to the church, my, my church, the Catholic church. And what I found out in very, very short order was that I didn't need a God that would fit into my life and justify how I was living. I needed a God that would challenge me, challenge hmm. me on a daily basis sure. to make me be better. And in many respects, it was the same kind of philosophy that I've always applied to my acting. It's like, I don't need an acting teacher that's going to tell me I'm great. I need an acting teacher that's going to help me, that's going to challenge me. I need a director that's going to have me dig deeper and deeper and deeper. I need to do material that's going to make me want to look further into how to make this real, Mm. how to make this matter. Mm. And that, you know, jump cut to what I feel my purpose is in Mm. almost everything I do uh, is... I try to find out where God is mm. in every play that I do, or where God isn't. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I did. Uh, I've I worked with Arthur Lawrence a couple times in my career, mm. and you know, a lot of people can say a lot of mean things about Arthur. Uh, Arthur, I like to say that Arthur mentored me a lot of way without knowing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things he taught me was: whenever you embark on a project, you ask yourself two very simple questions. What is this play about, and why are you doing it? Okay. Well, those are great questions. Anybody can answer them. But if you can't answer each of those in 25 words or less, you need to do some work. Dig deeper, yeah, to find out what... Dig deeper, right. break down to a cogent mm-hmm. argument. Right. And to a degree, all of those things are supported by my faith and how it's applicable in my work. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to be a Catholic. It's hard to be a Catholic in our community. I was going to ask, I was going to say, the reason I brought up even the question wasn't to be, it was because you hear so little about, whenever we talk about theater, no one really ever talks about spirituality or faith or religion for a variety of reasons, you know, and our, our, for, for many years and decades in history, theater often has been sort of the pagan place, right? So theater has its own, <laughs> theater has its own religion, you know, theater is the religion, so to speak, you know, it's the, it's the other choice other than, you know, for a lot of people and for a lot of people who maybe are LGBT or who have felt maybe put down by some form of organized religion, then maybe escaped and found safety in theater because there was no expectation of sort yeah. of any kind of, but I, so that's why I think it's so fascinating for you to, uh, to talk about your faith. And I think it's good and important because for some people, spirituality is a key and, and theater is close to spirituality, but you've got to find that by, you know, for some people, they need a channel. They need a way to be able to, like you said, you were searching for something that would work for you. And it's so interesting that you found it in your Spanish roots and your Roman Catholic, you know, uh, upbringing, you know, there somewhere. So it was there, um, probably, that you just are harking back to maybe some of your dad's ancestors. I think in many respects, you know, it's 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 a part of my home. You know, it's part of my center. Yeah. The theater, the theater, and my faith. They go. Mm-hmm. They so go hand in hand. And just you know, incidentally, about the theater and about you know, conservatism and and liberalism. I mm-hmm. just you know want to say we just went through this horrible, horrible thing just a couple weeks ago thank god they backpedaled on it where the bishops were going to deny uh giving communion to uh we're talking about denying uh communion 
for President Biden because of his stance on gay rights and abortion and things like that. And they backpedaled on that. And I just want to point out that this morning, this morning, Pope Francis sent a letter to Father James Martin, SJ, one of the great progressive priests in the country, Mm -hmm. basically congratulating him on his progressive stance <laughs> on LGBT rights yeah. in the Catholic it's been, Church. I mean, I, and this is a controversial topic, but um, I have my own views because, you know, the Pope is from my mother's part of the world, the current Pope, you know, from Argentina. My mother's from Uruguay right across the river. And so my mom is very Catholic and, and, and my grandmother was extremely Catholic, my mom less so, but um, she very much loves the Pope, uh, this Pope, and is very much very in favor of him. And even though he has some missteps or even though he's criticized, he's still taking the, the, the Roman Catholic Church to places it's never been before, if you ask me. He's bringing it into, the, trying to bring it into the 21st century gently uh, and with humanity, and it's not easy to do. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy to do, People but you know what? The great thing about him is that he's, he's doing it as an extension, not of politics, not of liberal mm-hmm. politics yes. or progressive attitudes, but mm-hmm. as an extension of God's grace. It's yeah. all very, very scripturally based. Yeah. And and it's, it's really, really inspiring. Uh, so I'm very... You know, I'm proud to be Catholic for two reasons. Number one, I'm proud to be Catholic because of that. And I'm also proud to be Catholic because by saying so, it makes me be a better Catholic. Mm. It's like, I can't say yeah. that unless I'm actually going to try to be better every right. day. You hold yourself as a accountable. Human being. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which is wonderful. So, and I mean, I think it's good. And you're in the theater milieu and you're with all these theater people. And if they, if any of them may have a, a negative view of religion, understandably, I really hope that you're also there to build a bridge. You're also there to reach out to them and say, you know, not all of us are this way. So, you know, yeah, some of us are accepted. Exactly. I try that. I, I try that. I mean, I feel but, in many respects that's my okay. job as a Catholic, yes. and, you know, as the Catholic in the company. It's so funny because almost every show that I'm in, somebody else will come up to me. Why are we whispering? <laughs> right, because they're scared, they're ashamed, or embarrassed yeah, to say. But, well, it's but, good. You so know, you can usually out- find out is that everybody, everybody, once you're working in a show, everybody defaults to humanity. Yes, that's one of the and, things that that's why yeah. we that's why that's we, we do, do this together. crazy business. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, talking it's, talking about crazy business, I we need to wrap up. But before we wrap up, I do not want to go without you talking about the online production of A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder that you're doing with you, with collaboration um, and an all-Asian cast, I hear, with proceeds going to... An all-Asian cast, an incredible cast. Alan Maroka, who plays Mr. Hooper on Sesame Street, who was also a really, really fine theater and television director, is at the helm here. Mm. Uh, We've got uh, Diane Phelan, Carl Joseph Coe, the irrepressible brilliant Cindy Chung and uh, Ali Ewald. Mm. Uh, we're doing a sort of a reduced uh, cast version of this. I have the blessing and the great burden of following Jefferson May's footsteps oh. and playing all nine dice quits. I was going to say, you're playing the uh, hardest I, I, role I'm of the show. I'm absolutely yeah. thrilled to do this. Yeah. This will be live streamed, I believe, on Broadway, uh, Broadway On Demand, starting on July 15th. Oh. And I believe it'll run through the weekend. Uh, it's it's an extraordinary thing. You know, it's, it's a great opportunity for the Asian American uh, musical theater community to show that we are here. 
We are here and we are capable and we don't have to sit and wait around for Chu Chim or Miss Saigon mm. or The King and I, all of which are worthy projects. Sure, but create your but own opportunities. Yeah. Right. So you're creating so, yeah. 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 And I think right now, I'm, and I'm just going to say this not cynically, the news cycle has changed and mm-hmm. all of a sudden we're not talking about Asian Americans in society again. We're sort of in danger of becoming invisible again because now we're talking about something else in the news cycle. Right. It, go, it does. There's not happening. a lot of. There's not a it's lot still of. Still a danger. Time. Yeah. And let's talk about the, this show. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, some of the proceeds or all the I don't know if it's all the proceeds or some of them are going to hashtag Stop AAPI Hate, which is Asian yes. American and Pacific Islander right hate. Um, so this is a great movement. And like you said, even if it may not be the hottest topic at this particular, you know, this week, it's an important topic. And it was very big and has been during the pandemic with a lot of people um, showing their outwardly expressing and uh, their hate physically and with words, as well as uh, hurting people and killing people because of their Asian uh, American heritage. So um, uh, it's it's great that you guys are doing this. And it's July 15th, correct? And if people are interested in getting a ticket for the online, I'm one of those people. What do I need to do? You just need to go to, you just need to Google collaborazian. That's A-Z-I-A-N. Okay. Collaborazian. Collaborazian. Uh, okay. And um, they will, uh, there will be links Good. to how to get tickets. Wonderful. Uh, for yep. this. It's, I'm very, very excited by it. It's, yes. It was, it's another fun, crazy green screen production. Uh, I've done several of these this year and uh, I'm getting an idea of what it must have been like in the early years of television. Right. And I know that you're also, the last thing I'll add in here, I know that you're also keeping busy, not only appearing in television and film, but you're teaching a very popular course called Acting on Zoom. Yes, it looks like acting on Zoom is here to stay. Yes. You know, I was just talking to some people in development for a couple of institutions, and they were saying that they intend on uh, keeping up with um, online, uh, you know, developmental readings sure. uh, for the duration. Because, well, first of all, it's cost-effective, and yes. second of all, you can work with people from all or around over. the country or yeah. all around the world. I've done a couple of readings where people were uh, zooming in from Australia mm-hmm. and Great Britain at the same time. So mm-hmm. you can get the cast that you oh, want to absolutely. get. Yeah. And it's a different thing. It's and you're reaching film, out. It's not television. No. It's and, you're not reach, and you have a much broader reach. Anyone around the world can get on the internet and see it. And so suddenly you can be reaching out to someone in Australia or in Brazil who have right. otherwise may not have ever been able to come see your reading or your show because, you know, they right. don't live in New York or they can't travel. Um, you know, I had the same experience. I recently directed a, a production, a, a reading of Mothers and Sons here at, at Metro Stage in D.C. And I... And, great play. Oh, fantastic play. You know, Terrence McNally's wonderful play. And because it was online, I could then call my friend Ewan Chung and say, hey, do you want to play the boy, you know, the husband, the, the partner, the younger partner? He said, really? I said, yeah. He's like, I would never get offered that role. And I said, I know. Come do it. He's on the West Coast. right? So he didn't have to, you know, he could just do it on the, you know, and, 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 and I, I wanted, you know, uh, him to be in it. And so suddenly... 
it was something that not only was it from a casting perspective something that he would never get cast for. I don't know why, because he's, he's you know, perfect for it. But, um, but also because he was on the West Coast. So, yeah, no. So, uh, Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, produced by Collabor Asian, uh, with proceeds going to hashtag stop AAPI hate, streaming starting July 15th. Anyone listening, please, please, please look it up and Google it and then go take a look and listen. What a wonderful and fun show that is. And I can't wait to see what you guys do with it. Um, Tom, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful time chatting with you on American Theater Artists Online. We've um, uh, covered just a, just just skim the surface of what you have <laughs> to say. So I'm sorry. Uh, there's so much, so much in your varied and lengthy career. There's so much. Please make him stop. <laughs> no, not at all. There were so many wonderful things, and and we didn't really even, like I said, scratch the surface because you've done so much. I mean, what what can we do in in an hour? Not much. So we'll have to have you on again. I'd love to have you on with a, a, a couple of other of uh, uh, friends of mine to maybe talk about this issue of, of Asian representation on the stage, because I think that would be an interesting topic. You know what? We, we would be happy to. One of the most exciting things about doing this uh, G-Glam thing, by the way, is mm-hmm. that it is a new medium. And, and every time you come up with a new medium like that, you develop a new consciousness. And yes. if, if, if we can contribute just a little to the evolutionary, the next evolutionary step in how we view each other in equitable, diverse uh, ways, then just doing 10 seconds of it is worthwhile. Wonderful. That's a perfect way to end the episode. Thank you, Tom, so much for being on American Theatre Artists Online. We wish you all the well, um, all well and all good things for you. As you said, with obligation, it's an obligation and a blessing, right? So that's, those Amen. things will, will keep coming to you, I know. So have a great rest of your day. You too, Stephen. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the American Theatre Artists Online podcast. This episode was edited by Zach Walsh. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider donating to the Actors Fund today. Just go to actorsfund.org and press donate. If you'd like to share your feedback or send us comments, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at American Theatre Artists Online.